Irish hotline for the room. That's the voice of Tommy Weezer. Landmark Theaters, located at 1045 Bruxton Avenue. Ten years ago. Los Angeles. Before we could Google anything in the world from our smartphone in an instant. Please leave your phone number, a number in your party. A hotline for a movie may have been a sensible idea. But as I've just learned... And we see you at the screen of the room. Tommy still has a hotline in 2013. Please leave your phone number. Advertising a movie that's 10 years old. Thank you very much for calling and supporting the room. A movie... Have fun with it. Thanks. ...that has been widely declared one of the worst movies ever made. The Room is a 99-minute film written by Tommy Wiseau, produced by Tommy Wiseau and directed by Tommy Wiseau. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. It also stars... Who else? Tommy Wiseau. Hi, doggy. As a middle-aged man named Johnny who inexplicably hangs around young people, including a woman he refers to not as his fiance, but as his future wife. People are very strange these days. And its storyline is as coherent as a badly printed set of furniture instructions. People are very strange these days. Characters make casual revelations that are never mentioned again. I got the results of the test back. I definitely have breast cancer. There is misplaced emphasis in the drama. I owe him some money. What kind of money? I owe him some money. What kind of money? And then there's the dialogue. The strangely surreal dialogue. You don't understand anything, man. Leave your stupid comments in your pocket. My name is Edward Champion, and this is The Bat Segundo Show. The Room has become a cult phenomenon. It regularly sells out midnight screenings across the United States. It has even inspired a video game. And now, it has propagated the book. The Disaster Artist, co-authored by Greg Sestero, who appeared in The Room as Mark, and journalist Tom Bissell, who has previously appeared on this program. I met up with Greg and Tom in a room with very odd reverb to discuss the many Byzantine mysteries behind this uniquely bizarre movie and its odd, enigmatic, elusive director. Okay, so I am here with Greg Sestero and Tom Bissell, who are the co-authors of The Disaster Artist. Greg, Tom, how are you doing? Very good. Very good. Superb. Yes, Lee. superbly. I, I, Greg, you uh, you showed that you were a very Hollywood kind of guy. When, uh, we, I walked in, and you were there with your phone, texting very meticulously. Yeah. Is this an L.A. thing? Is this a Hollywood thing? You know, or? I, I, I got to specific... stop that. I've just gotten too <laughs> addicted to my phone and responding back to people, and I'm going to take a, a weekend break from, uh, from my phone. All right. Well, anyway, I'm curious about how you guys both wrote this book. There are large chunks of dialogue between... Greg and Tommy Wiseau, uh, and it's often so specific that uh, I can't imagine how you could get it that specific after several years had passed, so I'm wondering, you know, I have to assume much of it was invented. I guess, Tom, you happen to have shared Tommy's name. Uh, did you two kind of talk to each other in a dark room, you with the Wiseau kind of accent? Uh, how, how did this come about, the, the, the dialogue in this book, to, to sort of flesh out the big, important story behind the room? Well, Greg and I recorded all these chapters. Um, we have like 30 hours of tape. Oh. And Greg is an actor. Greg has a very good memory. And I would ask him to dig back into his memory, and he would do these conversations as clearly as he could remember them. And he's, he knows Tommy so well that he could get those Tommy-tastic little 
kind of grammatical flubs. Uh-huh. I, I did very little to the dialogue. It kind of came out of Greg as, as he remembered the tenor of his conversations. That's how it was recorded, and that's how we transcribed it. Was there any severe trauma, Greg, in this sort of sense memory? Of well, you, uh, yeah, that's actually it's off to a very good start. I, I do have a, a, a very good memory, um, for better or for worse. And you'd taken a lot of notes over the years. And, yeah, and with Tommy, he's so unique that you don't really forget as you can tell with the movie, people quote it all the time. You don't really forget the way he speaks. It's, it's a very signature way of saying things. Uh, and it was such an unforgettable experience that I, I just remembered almost everything. Yeah. And um, it came to me very quickly. I told stories about my experience to many people. So they were very vivid and very clear in my memory. And the, and the dialogue was, I, I read excerpts of it to, to Tommy's, but chapter four and Tommy's planet and he was he was shocked he's like my god that's exactly what happened you uh-huh. remember exactly what i say he's like you know good job so um, <laughs> you have to do you have to say like he would say my god good job <laughs> so yeah so he, he was consulted for all of the dialogue in this there was like um, severe kind of i mean he, he is a control freak from what i yeah gathered. i mean i i went over a lot of things with him about his past and i and i traveled with him and gone to the places that i spoke about in the book and he was very clear on stuff he was comfortable with me putting his background and his retail um career in san francisco but he was you know i knew he wouldn't want me to talk about certain things and i left that up to him and i and i cut those things out um and the the dialogue yeah he, that's the way he that's the way he speaks for, i mean basically verbatim um especially i traveled with him while i was writing the book on tour and i got to when i was interviewing him and it it reconnected me with with the way he talks so yeah, a lot of that dialogue is just straight up. You also notice happened. in the film, the film is like a constant recycling of the same six or seven pieces of Speech. idiomatic yeah, language. Yeah, yeah. And when I've interviewed Tommy, and he says that he he says those things. He wrote them. He says them. They they kick around in his head. And so one of the real pleasures was as Greg was doing, was we remembering as Greg's going back and recreating these conversations. I would notice that those phrases would slip in, and I was like. The great thing I like about it is a real avid room fan will be reading these pre-room scenes, and then suddenly, boom, there's a phrase from the movie, and you're like, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, when he asks Greg about how do you get into SAG, he's like, well, now that you are expert, how do you get into the SAG? And then in the film, he's like, yeah. it seems to me you are the expert, Mark. So. Yeah, you can't, you can't invent stuff with Tommy. It's got to... He's just this character that exists so you can't <laughs> to do him justice you need to quote him verbatim huh. and that's that was my my goal with it is to just be as exact <clears throat> and as possible has the Weezo vernacular helped you in the course of your adult life <laughs> you know has it has it allowed you to uh, i suppose be more forthcoming in certain ways when you know talking with family or friends or therapists <laughs> like yeah it definitely has yeah. <laughs> do you have any examples you can you can offer i mean, um, I mean do, does, does if you go to sleep at night do you sometimes hear that sort of uh, Balkan voice lulling you, yeah. uh, encouraging certain nocturnal <laughs> dreams and associated emissions. Definitely that, nocturnal. Yeah. I, I do have many laughs thinking about what would Tommy say in this moment, and I'll even think like him sometimes. Um, think like him. Yeah, like what would he say? Like if, you know, there's one thing that's always really funny is he, he's always going, he's always grabbing things and bringing things places, and I'm, I'd just be standing there and watching him. He'd be like, my God, do something. You know, don't be Statue of Liberty. And so I've noticed myself when I'm like carrying posters and getting, you know, really busy during this time and someone's standing there, I'll be like, you know, can you help me? And I'll think, I say, can you help me? But Tommy would be like, my God, do something. Yeah. So it's funny to kind of, I now I understand a lot. I've understood him a lot more in the last years of what he says, but the way he communicates is so funny that, um, 
It just makes him, you know, the character that he is. One thing I didn't know until I read this book was that the talented Mr. Ripley was a huge influence on the room, which I had no idea, and which makes complete sense yes. in, in hindsight. Yeah, it's I the mean, source text. Yeah, it's yeah. the source text. I mean, you know, Tommy and Greg, Tom and Dickie. <laughs> it's uh, all and, 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 and as you point out, uh, you had it gave you the flu when you watched it the first time without Tommy uh, for about two weeks. Yeah. And this was, a, this was fascinating to me. I, I, I'm wondering if you have actually gone back to the original source, Patricia Highsmith, and tried to mine those novels for deeper insights about Tommy or, or your own life or how you became friends with him and all that. Yeah, I um, actually started reading almost all of... I've read the entire Ripley series yeah. um, after reading that. and um, Yeah, it's, they're, they're very similar characters in ways. The, the difference is, I think, Tommy, um, deep down, is a really, he's, a genuine, he's a genuine person. He's, he's charismatic, and while Tom Ripley has a dark streak, who's, he's just not comfortable with himself. Um, so there were, there were fine lines of, of the way they operated, but yeah, I, it's, it's amazing. It's longing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's the core that when Tommy watched Talented Mr. Ripley, what it did to him, how it really got him, got a rise out of him. Like no other movie that I had seen when I'd watched them. Like we watched Fight Club and he's like, my God, this is so boring. You know? <laughs> and he was Mr. bored Ripley, by Fight Club? Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> he's like, I do better acting in class. Wow. So, Even with Meatloaf and the cool editing? I know. Wow. Well, Fight Club is wow. one of my favorite movies, but the town Mr. Ripley, I think, is, it has that element, and he just, he lit up, and that's what he wanted to make. He, when Greg revealed that to me, and this happened in the court, I didn't know that until it actually came out in our interviews. Yeah. I was like, stop the fucking tape. And we actually stopped the tape, and we sat there, and we talked through all of the correspondences. I don't even think you... You and I would just started bringing up things from the movie, and it was yeah, just, yeah, it, it all started, started to happen. Making sense, yeah. Like, oh Peter, my God. there's a character named Peter in the yes. town of Mr. Ripley. You know, Matt Damon, it's all his fault. Yeah. Uh, Mark Damon, <laughs> Mark Damon yeah. you know, and you have you know the all-American guy who's you know, and and so. And we both read Strangers on a Train when we were working on this book. Yeah. And for some reason, we talked about that book a lot. So there's there's like a weird high Smithian quality. Yeah. 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 Except yeah. there have been no murders, thankfully, <laughs> unless you kind no. of did a crisscross thing. No, I, you know, I, I, well, there was that I'm one still... vagrant you and I <laughs> hunted for sport during the the concussion. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Greg, it seems to me that with this Los Angeles apartment, the repeat play back of Tommy's audition tape, uh, the phone calls when you worked as a salesman at the Armani Exchange, that you were either remarkably patient with Tommy or, well, you enjoyed being walked over. And I was really curious about this. I mean, you know, even accounting for the whimsical follies of being a young man, I mean, what do you think kept you coming back to Tommy Wiseau? I mean, what was it? Is he just extraordinarily charismatic or, you know, did you just overlook some of these qualities? Yeah, I think youth obviously comes into play, but there was just something about Tommy that was different. And I, you know, I felt like an outcast with my family and Tommy made me feel like I belonged to something. And I couldn't really let go of the fact of the LA experience I had when I first got there, the excitement of it and thinking that really... I would have never had that. And even that that's all it was, I never would have had that. And it was all because, really because of him. So that bond really became strong. Um, and it was really difficult. I mean, obviously, there's, you know, I thought about saying, my God, I got to just get out of this. But anytime I tried to flee or, or told Tommy what I thought or got emotional and, and said those things, he would always, you know, retreat and come back and be like, he didn't mean to make me feel that way. So... It was tough to leave somebody, especially in the book when he disappeared, that when I saw him outside that acting class, like just standing away from everybody, 
I felt for him because I, I, you know, I felt the same way in yeah. a lot of ways, except I, I fit in more, but I understood what he was going through. So it's hard to let someone kind of float off and into despair and, and knowing that you can make a difference. I always feel at the end of the day, I'd rather make a difference and make someone feel better than, than be, you know, selfish. I guess it's just more about being selfless than, yeah. being, than being selfish. I mean, obviously, I mean, I look crazy when you, when you are able to look at the experience from the outside and see all these problems, it's easy, just leave. But sometimes when you're in it, you, you want to do what's right, hopefully, and, and help that person. Well, he probably gave you more approval than Robin Williams did on Patch Adams. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I guess, I guess I, who knew that, that Tommy would be uh, more of a, of a uh, more, have more solicitude than Robin Williams, who, who <laughs> I, I know, thought right? would exude that kind of thing, being a sort of wild and crazy guy from San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, Tommy's a force, and he, he challenged me to say, you know, don't be a chicken, go for what you want to accomplish. Yeah. And, you know, I just never really forgot that. Okay. Um, actually, I wanted to actually ask about uh, the mysterious $6 million that financed the room. Uh, there are allusions to a string of shops, the TSW Corporation, and it so intrigued me that I actually did a business search at the California Secretary of State finding nothing in relation really? to this. Yeah, I, 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 I didn't. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, Tom, what investigative acumen did you bring to this project to really track down the Weasel mystique, the sort of unknown trail that people have been thinking about, uh, conjuring up all sorts of theories about over these many years. Um, everything I know is in the book. Yeah. Um, and at a certain point, I have no idea how he amassed this fortune. Um, I don't think you really know either. I know he's, he works around the clock. Um, I know he had retail shops. I'd been there. You know, I, I, I know he has those things. I know he owns a lot of real estate. Real estate. Yeah. And um, that's kind of as far as it goes. I, I, I did research and interviewed people, but really I wanted him to tell his story and let kind of the, the readers decide what was there. Um, Is there any way to get that video he sent to the insurance company? Because the way it was described was oh rather extraordinary. With it, like, it was extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> I, when, Tom, it. when Tom watched it... Um, <laughs> It's his incredible. reaction was just he put his hand up and he's just like oh my god yeah 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 <laughs> what have i gotten myself but basically into? He, he you know just to tell our listeners he had all these all this classical music over it apparently and also he recruited people to say good things about tommy so that he can get the insurance yeah. it's like really mournful <laughs> shots of these burned blue jeans burned blue jeans scored really? they actually didn't even look that bad no. you know he did, <laughs> and the insurance mild. company went for this who that knows? I don't, know. I don't know. All we have is the tape. But he was a, he's a relentless retail guy. In fact, he's even right now he's designing an underwear line and a jeans line. Is he really? Huh. He's going all out. Are you so. are you going to be one of his models or no, I'll, let, I'll, I'll delegate that to somebody else. Oh, Tom, do you, have, do, you have, do you need some additional income? I don't think the world needs you to see that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But I will say the line that I'm sort of happiest with in this book is in discussing Tommy's background. Like the simplest answer is usually the right answer. But with Tommy, there doesn't seem to be a simplest answer. Yeah. That's the, the, the astounding thing about him. Yeah. You never, you um, think you know something and then there's just a trail of mystery that you, you're yeah. led down. And um, after knowing him, you know, after 15 years, um, there's still a lot left to know. Yeah. But if you think about it, the creative financing that he brought to the room is really no different than the creative financing that is behind most Hollywood projects. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm wondering if, if for some reason he inhabited that same kind of blind, reckless instinct that we usually associate with 
you know, Hollywood producers who hope someone else can cook the books. And really, that's why he was able to get the room made, just because that's just the way it is in L.A. It seems like he read a how-to-make-a-movie book, but, like, skipped every other paragraph. Because yeah. some things he obviously did were, like, it's one of his quotes. It's how they do so in Hollywood. Yeah, they yeah. no different than big studio. Yeah. So he clearly believed he was doing things according to studio procedures. He was following some of the guidelines. Yeah, his interpretation for the room was like he's, he was doing it like the big sharks. The billboard, the equipment, the green screen. Um, he thought that's how a high-end Hollywood production does their, does their movie. Yeah. Huh. One of the most frightening elements of the room, which I really must talk to you two gentlemen about, just to clarify this, is Tommy Wiseau's ass. Um, it is there. Uh, it reportedly scared the editor's wife. Uh, it is covered during the love scenes, and yet we have this one Brad Pitt-like moment when he's out of bed. Um, and as the book puts it, I've never seen anyone more comfortable being naked around people who resented him. But this still doesn't explain something which I had hoped to uh, get the, from the book, but maybe you guys can answer, which was the relentless soundtrack of groans and thrusting that are over all of these love scenes. They're, they're relentlessly noisy, and, and I'm wondering <laughs> if something about Tommy Wiseau's relationship with his ass contributed to the kind of uh, noise factor in these particular scenes, to say nothing of the fact that 11 minutes of the film is composed of basically love scenes and all that. You had to record those groan tracks. You oh, had to, you had to record, you were actually the You could hear Greg in one of the groan tracks, he's, oh. Yeah, I had to sit in a, in a VO, you know, booth and do those while watching it and I just thought, my God, this is just painful and I, so I said, okay, let's, let's make it cheesy and so I, again, I didn't think anybody would see it so I, uh, <laughs> I did that and it came out terrible but uh, Tommy did the same thing. I think with Tommy, he's proud of his of his rear end, and that's and that's very you know, that's great. But he was trying to kind of create a leading man moment for himself, um, and was you know felt good about it and said you know I he believed he has to show his ass or this movie will not sell, and that's what made him decide. He was laying on the ground inside Burns and Sawyer, wondering whether he should do it. And he's like, you know what, I have to. Yeah. And it was not even a closed set. That's what's even more fascinating yeah. about he that. He opened the set. He opened the set. Yeah. Wow, wow. I mean, you know, that's the other thing. I mean, did, could he just not remember his groans as much as he could not remember his lines? Well, I think with the groans, I think sometimes it's, a lot of times they, they do do those little things in post to yeah. kind of fill them in. But he, his groans went really too far, which I think make, oh, yeah. make those scenes even more fun. There's, there's groan outtakes. Yeah. <laughs> How long is that first sex scene? It's three and a half minutes, It's right? so long. Yeah, it, was, it was actually even longer in the rough cut. I mean, it, just, it was like a music video yeah. that just kept going on and on. But he so. had to find something that could, like, basically a song that would last as long exactly. for the scene. He couldn't yeah. find, like, a seven-minute song yeah. that would work. I or he actually <laughs> wanted to have bon jo- one of Bon Jovi's songs. Always. At, at, yeah, always yes. to be there. And it, uh, I don't think... Bon Jovi went for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, you know, was was that ever a problem getting music for this movie? Or um, no, he he had everything scored from scratch. He hired a composer. Yeah. He hired these two guys to write the R and B stuff. So everything was done <coughs> just for this movie. Yeah. So I have to ask about this this really curious quality that the film was shot simultaneously on thirty five millimeter and HD. Uh, to some degree, you know, in light of our world now in which Kodak is bankrupt and movies are mostly digital projected, 
Tommy was ahead of his time, I think, for this. And, I, and I'm wondering if, um, if he had any particular theories as to why specifically he was doing this. Was this just his way of trying to come up with a kind of curious innovation uh, comparable to Citizen Kane, sort of similar to you know, the way he smashed up the room at the end of the movie? Or? Yeah, that's, that's a, yes, definitely. He, he, I think HD was very cutting edge at the time. And he actually was thinking that this would be the first film to ever be shot that way. Yeah. And with Tommy, he's always there to make a mark. And he saw his big Hollywood movie as being shot on two formats. And when he found out no one else had ever done that, he's like, we're going to be the first one. Were there any other striking, innovative moments like that where he wanted to be the first, the one to go ahead? I think he was the first one to build his own bathroom inside the stage. Yeah, yeah. Everyone, everyone was impressed with that. I think he's the first person to shoot a rooftop scene in a parking lot. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing, because that seemed to remind me very much of like the way Hitchcock uh, was very, uh, very... He did not like shooting on location, to the point where if you watch The Birds, also a San Francisco movie to some extent, um, you see when, when Tippi Hedren goes into that bird shot, that's still on a soundstage. And I'm wondering, um, you know, was... Tommy, a big student of Hitchcock, did he actually yes. take some? Oh, really? Okay. He loves Hitchcock. Yeah. yeah, he loves Hitchcock. He loves Tennessee Williams, Mar- uh, Marlon Brando, Clint Eastwood. Those are the kind of the guys that he. If you were big in the fifties or sixties. Yeah. Moi. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So he needed to have a, like a twenty-year lag time essentially for influences. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So he was he wasn't actually keeping track of like the latest films at all or anything like that. I mean, I know. Not really. I mean, that's what was interesting. The one he really responded to was The Talented Mr. Ripley, which has sort of a classic 50s trauma feel, you know? So that's the movies that speak to him that have that kind of plot. Um, Tom, so I should point out to your Harper's essay, Cinema Crudite, which actually kicked off this to some degree. It revealed that Tommy Wiseau had batted away all questions about his personal life. He refused to divulge any friends (laughs) so that you could flesh out his personal side. you know, you were alluding before we ran tape that he doesn't really like you very much, but I'm wondering, you know, how much of his personal side did this book reveal? Were there new questions that, uh, I mean, was there a substantial amount of new questions, or was he putting up that Berlin Wall of uh, personal involvement uh, during the course of this? Um, I never spoke to Tommy about this. Greg was always the go-between. Oh, oh Greg was um, the middleman. <laughs> Greg was the middleman. You were the so liaison. Greg, Greg would interview Tommy and come back to me, and we would sit and look at Greg's notes. <laughs> oh, really? And we'd figure out how it all fit together. And I think I had the idea, if we're going to talk about Tommy, we just need to go into, like, foggier factual area yeah. and, and, and go into a place that's like half invention and half real yeah. because he's half invention and half real exactly and so, so some of my favorite parts of the book are those sections where we where, you know we try to imagine this young man who grew up in this faraway place like what it was like so some of that stuff is legitimate some of it's not um, some of it's just yeah some of it we it, some of it we are just discovering whether yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, this, I mean, wait a minute here, Tom. So, so did Tommy not want to talk with you, or did you not want to talk with Tommy? I was just, it's not... It's I don't think, yeah, I don't think that was ever oh, okay. even a question. I think I was just basically with Tommy on tour for the film, and when I told him, you know, I, I think this story is great, I think there's something really there to tell, I, I, I started talking with him, and he, he, he opened up to me about the moment in, in Strasbourg where he had that horrible night, and he was in tears, and... So, Where he's assaulted by two French Yeah, players, and, and yeah. so he started opening up about these things. He's like, well, here's another story I can tell you, you know, about yeah. this time I saw yo-yos in San Francisco. Because he so, trusted you more, yeah. 
Yeah, well, and, and I think that he little by little started telling me stories, and and they started coming together, and I'd ask him questions, and and I thought his backstory. I've always thought his backstory was really fascinating. He's a genuinely fascinating character. He's a genuinely fascinating man. I loved writing about him. Yeah, and and, um, and there's stuff that you know, little by little he would go into, and I, I went with him to New Orleans, and I, I got to experience him in that environment, which was really interesting, because you never know if that stuff happened. You just, you wonder, and it was it was very engaging to be with him in this, these old stomping grounds he had, and I ended up going to the places where he was from, and so it, it made the story a lot richer for me um, to, to be able to, you know, to go back with Tom and to be able to tell it. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned from the book that there are two specific instances in the room that actually were pulled directly from Tommy's life. Uh, the woman at the Beta Breakers who holds up the sign, will you marry me? Which is funny because I lived in San Francisco for 13 years and there were far more eccentric and outrageous sites than <laughs> something like that. Um, there is also a real life allusion in the book to Tommy actually trying to cash this out of state check. Um, so, you know, since both of you gentlemen have spent a good deal of time dwelling on the question of how the room represented this projection or this wish fulfillment of how Tommy viewed America and the people around him, I mean, is it safe to say that this was really kind of his ultimate personal expose, that he actually could reveal himself truer through this kind of oblique method as opposed to just telling you about, hey, I, uh, I had some funny adventures in, in France or whatnot? Yeah. The Room is his secret autobiography. Yeah. And, I, and I think once you read this book, you, you, the movie becomes weirder and richer yeah. in a weird kind of a way. Yeah. Um, and I, that's one of the things I love, just hearing Greg tell these stories and the two of us just putting pieces together. It was, one, it was really, really great. Yeah. And I hope Room fans respond to that. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's a lot of... It's a, a lot of ways, it's a friendship story with The Room about, you know, having a best friend and then having your best friend betray you and in the original script there's so much about you know Peter and Mark are best friends and all these people are best friends and I think Tommy's view on friendship is in there his view about women's in there and it's almost like the movie is his psyche unleashed and I think that that's what I think people like Tom was saying people that's what they're responding to in a lot of ways it's it's because there's so many bad movies out there but there's something he's trying to get across in this movie that I think that's what makes people so interested. Is it really, is it, is, is it real? Did these things happen? Yeah. It's both incredibly guarded and completely naked in a way that I don't know any other movie, good or bad or otherwise, that has this weird combination of transparency and obfuscation. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, I want to talk about also his James Dean fixation. Um, you mentioned Rebel Without a Cause, but to, to my mind, I think the giant is actually the key... Uh, the key input into uh, into Tommy because what does James Dean do for that movie? He plays an oil tycoon. Tommy, he's playing some sort of successful businessman both in life and in film. What does Tommy do? He is dyeing his hair black but he's doing it in reverse to James Dean who was dyeing his hair gray <laughs> in Giant. And I'm wondering, you know, uh, whether whether this was possibly really the James Dean thing. Well, the book doesn't really deal with that. I'm, I'm curious. I, I gave, actually, it's funny, in, in 1999 I gave Giant... To Tommy for his birthday. Really? Huh. And he lo- he definitely loved it. I know, I mean, I, I didn't think of it that way, but um, I know Rebel Without a Cause is obviously that line is iconic and the emotion part is iconic. Um, but I think just James Dean in general and that 50s time and, and, and Brando is definitely a huge influence on Tommy. So I, I, I'm sure that's sprinkled throughout, you know, throughout the movie. Yeah. Greg, do you think that uh, Tommy's 
behavior and his acting made a permanent uh, dent or in, into your possibilities as an actor in any way? Or? You know what, with The Room, I just, it was a fluke. I mean, I was never going to be in it. I ended up being in it. I didn't think anybody would see it. And here we are 10 years later and it's, you know, all over the world and people really enjoy it. So I, I accept it kind of for what it is. I think from here on out, if you go out and you do something great and make other movies and prove yourself, I'm sure people would be, would, you know, would be happy to follow. But I don't think The Room is ever something that's going to be like, oh, you know, here, let's cast me in this next movie because yeah. I don't even say dialogue that's comprehensible. You, know? you could stick Liam Neeson in there and they'd be like, what's he saying? So it's not ever something that's, that you've got you to basically from here on go out, go out and prove that you have something to offer in film. And I'm definitely looking forward to that challenge. But I, I accept The Room for what it is and I think it's hilarious and it's been a, it's been a, it's been a great ride. And it brought us together. Yeah, it's introduced me to it's introduced me to you know to various toms. Yeah, and, all, all sorts of mediums. And, yeah, and so I, I think. You How just many toms do you know, actually? Only one. Only only one. Only one. Only one. Tommy but, is a different tom. Oh, okay. But I think uh, you just gotta have a sense of humor about it and realize what it is and, and do your best to to move on and make new projects. I do have to bring up the matter of the beard, especially because the Wikipedia entry for the room has this very menacing sentence. Greg Sestero has been questioned about the significance of Mark's shaving, though his only response has been, if only you knew. <laughs> um, the book actually elaborates a little bit on these enigmatic four words by pointing to Tommy desiring a moment. Um, and I'm wondering if uh, ample investigation on both of your parts has produced any further findings on what this moment entailed, or, or was it entirely in the head of Mr. Weasel? It's entirely in the head of Mr. Weasel, but uh, he had a nickname for me in acting class because he, in acting class, you're always trying to figure out what type you are. Yeah, Am I baby like face. the rugged type? And he's like, you know what, you're a baby face. Yeah. And so that just turned into my nickname. And he thought that was a great thing. He thinks youth is very important. And randomly at the time, I was in the phase with it where every guy goes through where it's cool that you can grow a beard and you just keep growing it. And so I was in that phase and I had a beard. And, and so when he's like, be in the movie, I had a beard. I was like, perfect. If anybody sees this thing, I won't really be Greg. I'll be some guy with a beard. Yeah. But as we got close, you know, deeper into the movie, he had this realization. He's like, you know what? They need to see you as babyface. And he's like, you need to shave your beard. And I was like, no, I'm not going to. And he kept pushing it. And so I was like, he's like, trust me, it's worth it. So when I finally shaved, he was so excited. He's like, we're going to have you come in. And we're going to have you have this scene where you reveal your beardless face. Yeah. And he that, that wasn't even a written scene. He just threw it together. And that's why he said, you look like a baby face. Yeah. But it is really very odd that he would also have cameras on you as you were as shaving. Like a close yeah, up. It's yeah, like when I yeah. walk in, it's almost like this big reveal. But yeah. no one really knows Mark at that point. He's not really... You don't know what no, he No, 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 but, but I'm talking about the behind-the-scenes cameras as you were actually shaving. Yeah, did you? The, yeah, yeah, there's footage which, of that. Which, in, um, it's actually a little bit in, in the documentary, but yeah. in the, yeah, there's footage of him, of me, yes. you know, trimming and shaving, and I guess that was exciting. In other words, it, that the import of that moment existed entirely in, in Tommy's head. Yeah, yeah. But that notion of, I mean, constant surveillance, even when you weren't on camera, I mean, you know, how, how did you keep your sanity? I mean, why did you stick with these guys when... This movie had three director photographies, the three DPs. I mean, this had the crew constantly running. This had uh, people flocking, and you you stayed on board despite the madness and despite the fact that, uh huh. My favorite detail that is they got edited out 
is that the first crew, the, the, they were like moonlighting on the room. The other movie that they were doing, Jonathan Mostow's Terminator 3. Really? So these people are making Terminator 3 and then coming to do the room. <laughs> wow. And that is the most mind-blowing fact, that, that these two, that the same people make the same Really? It's, uh, Can you, uh, have you been able to find any kind of <laughs> cross-influence between the two? Well, Tommy is a cyborg from the future. That's true. So. That is yeah, true. That's, uh, yeah, I didn't think of that connection. <laughs> What, what about uh, Tommy's fixation on youth? I mean, it's just really odd that both in life and in film, he would want to hang out with young people and he would lie about his age. And, and uh, I mean, you know, if, as you point out in the book, if you do the math on his relationship, and uh, Johnny's relationship. She's 14. Make, yeah, she's 14. Um, that and also, you know, I haven't even mentioned the mother, you know, who is, who is the oldest character in the film. You know, why do you think that, that youth was the way for him to uh, create this sort of parallel identity for himself or I mean why do you think it came out that way it's probably a few different aspects I know for me in my experience a lot of people that kind of grew up in Europe and had a rough kind of early adult life never really got to be young yeah and I think with yeah. Tommy it's it's kind of not fair because you all of a sudden you, you're able to have a life around your 30 35 so you were kind of robbed of that time of being a teenager and I and and I experienced that my uncle had a really rough life and he came and started living with us when he was 30 and I was a kid and he was like always playing video games with us and wanting to be young and goofy and so I think maybe part of that Tommy never felt like he really got to have a, a childhood. Yeah. Tom, do you see any parallels between the room and Grand Theft Auto? Gosh, do you? <laughs> well, I mean in terms of the way that it presents kind of a fantasy. I would, I... Well, that's definitely true. Uh, have you played the room video game? I have not. I want to. It's amazing. Yeah, the Flash game, yeah. It's amazing. The creator might be here tonight. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't... I, I mean... Look, the, the thing I like about this book the most is that first it's a story about friendship. Then it's a story about Hollywood. Then it's a story about America. Then it's a story about the making of the room. And I really look at this as like a really strange immigrant slash making it in Hollywood story. And, and those are my favorite parts of the book. And, and you know, Grand Theft Auto 4 has this immigrant story and it is yeah it is a funhouse mirror version of the culture we don't understand the difference is the the rock star guys know exactly what they're doing <laughs> whereas this you can kind of yeah decide for Tommy yourself you what kind of need the Rosetta Stone to decode, to decode a lot of the of the reflections and, and I hope we've we've done that with some of them well, I'm just wondering if you're going to pen an open letter to Johnny as well you read that did you I did yes well maybe someday All right. Room okay. two. Return to the room. Okay. Well, Greg, Tom, thanks very much. It was a pleasure to chat. Thanks. thanks. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Great. Thanks. A new room, a new room for two room where every.